0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I'm not quite sure how to introduce
1: you to this next story. I mean, it's about royal families, but really it's about kind of fairy tales. You know, the stories we loved as children have a lot to do with how royal families tell the stories of their origin and how those stories develop. I know. It sounds interesting. We're going to get our guest to explain it all to us. It's Johnny Thompson, who's a professor of philosophy at Oxford University and the author of Mini Philosophy, A Small Book of Big Ideas. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me on. Thank you.
1: So we're talking about royal families here. Do they all have kind of a, a story of their origin that they'd like to tell?
2: Uh, most of them would, yeah. Um, I think today they incline to do so less, but definitely historically there was um, a really important reason to do so, and that's really to establish um, legitimacy. Um, because essentially we're we're so used today to um, having our democracy and our, kind of like rational uh, legal uh, justification for having an authority that we kind of forget that monarchies are actually quite a strange idea that you you, you invest all of your kind of uh, sovereignty in one person. And you assume that they have legitimate reason to be there. So what these monarchies needed to do, that they, they needed to establish themselves as being legitimate. Um,
1: so it's like PR. So if, if, they, were, they realized yeah, the importance well, yeah. of PR way back when.
2: What, well, absolutely that, exactly. So um, the sociologist called Max Weber, he, um, he essentially said that there are three ways in which you can establish yourself as being a legitimate author- authority. Uh, the first is what we have today, which is called the rational political uh, way, which is like democratic uh, voting for someone. Then you have a charismatic authority, which is uh, uh, one person who can attract lots of followers from their from their own personality. But then, of course, that's a bit fragile because when that person dies, then uh, it can be uh, the, the regime is then kind of thrown open. And then the third way is, is called traditional, um, which is what you do. Which is what you're seeing with myths and legends, really. So uh, every uh, revolutionary leader or every revolution needs to really establish themselves. For example, as being uh, some kind of uh, kind of return to the past or some kind of like uh, tradition.
1: But actually, so you see it with, listening sorry. to you talk about that, Johnny, makes me think that we do that with every leader. We do that even with any democratically elected leader. Is it we tell ourselves a story about their origin or their background because we're creating that?
2: Well, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, so if you think about revolutions, of course, one of them, one of the more successful, one of the most successful revolutions in history was the American Revolution. Um, And the reason why that didn't deteriorate into such kind of a bloodbath like like the French did or a lot of other revolutions since is because really of of George Washington. Because I mean, you have in Washington a very charismatic leader and essentially the whole revolution focused around him. And I think arguably one of Washington's greatest moments was when actually he had the, uh, the peaceful transition of power to John Adams at the first election. Um, and that was the first moment, really, where he kind of uh, yeah said that this is going to be a rational political system rather than a traditional system, which is what the uh, British political system was based on uh, with, with, with monarchies, really. Um, but, yeah, you, you see this all the time. You even see it, in, it with, with Hitler and the Nazis, actually, because um, Hitler referred to himself as as the Third Reich and the Nazis are the Third Reich. And a Reich is an empire. It's a German empire. So when Hitler said that we are the Third Reich, what he was doing was saying that we go back to the First Reich, which was in the 1800s, and then the Second Reich, which was the German Empire in the late 19th century, and then it all kind of culminates and kind of reaches its peak with with Hitler. So, he, he, you know, he, he was aware, as, as all revolutionaries are really, that they need to establish themselves as being um, just and legitimate.
1: Right. Maybe yeah. not just revolutionaries, though, but as you say, but dictators, authoritarian, anybody who wants to seize power has to tell a story, whether they do that through, you know coercion or whether they do it through democratically elected means they want to tell a story about themselves
2: oh absolutely yeah and so i mean so so what my work was on my article was about was was the the historic examples of this and um so obviously i'm i'm obviously i'm I'm british and one of the uh, biggest stories over here is the story of king arthur and that goes back to William the Conqueror, who was this essentially an invader. Uh, he was a Norman, Norman French, and he came over to uh, Saxon Britain and he, he beat them. He beat, he beat them and he established himself as king. And of course, you know, all of the Saxons, just because they were beaten in, the, in a few fights, didn't immediately accept this, this French man as being, as being the king. So what he needed to do was establish himself as some kind of like historic kind of savior figure. And so he developed this idea that well he got his pr team as you mentioned to kind of like go out and say look i am the return of king arthur i can trace my my lineage back to king arthur who was his ancient briton and so i have a right to be here if anything i am helping you overthrow the saxons who were themselves invaders so um the interesting story about king arthur actually is that it it, not only the british claim him So um, Charlemagne and uh, El Cid are examples in France and Spain, but uh, there are stories in France and in Brittany particularly, and and a lot of German kings also trace themselves back to Arthur, um, who's definitely this this legendary figure of the past, but yet comes with this kind of authority. Um,
1: That's interesting. So what are some of your other favorite examples of this historically? Yeah.
2: Well, wow, good. Uh, so yes, yeah, so the other um, stories are the Queen of Sheba is an interesting story. So in the Bible that we have, we introduced this, this kingdom of Sheba, who's, who's meant to be this very rich and kind of um, affluent and kind of slightly decadent, decadent civilization. And um, what you have is uh, the Queen of Sheba apparently goes to visit Solomon in, in somewhere in the southern Arabian Peninsula, we think. And uh, she she comes back pregnant so it was um hmm. obviously quite an exciting visit um <laughs> and and um she then gives birth to uh the first king of the of, of the sheba line which is probably modern day nigeria called menelik the first and um he apparently brought back the ark of the covenant which is meant you know this is great holy relic from the from the old testament um and christianity and judaism as well so yeah so according to the lines of nigeria the nigerian royal family trace himself back to a uh an exciting night between the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Um, so that's, that was a fun one. Um, <laughs> other fun one was <laughs> was from uh, from Poland. Um, so there's the, a the Polish story where there, there was this evil tyrannical leader called uh, Popiel um, who kind of like, you know, preyed on his villagers and was your general kind of like uh, Alan Rickman figure from uh, Robin Hood. Um, and then so all of the villagers, they, could, they couldn't take him on because he's a king in his castle with all these kind of like, you know, these square-jawed, Mercenaries, um, and so what they did was they prayed um, to the gods, or to God, sorry, I should say, as Christian. And they um, God brought some homicidal mice, or regicidal mice. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's it. So uh, lots of mice um, basically descended upon the castle. They kind of the guard tried to kill them, and every time they sliced a, mice and, a mouse in half, it kind of like it became two two mice. And eventually, they worked their way up to this leader, and they, they nibbled him to death. And so... That's quite a story. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but luckily for the Polish, though, P. S. the Wheelwright was down the road, um, who was a you know, general all-round good guy, a very humble man. Um, and he he hosted two wizards who had just happened to be wandering around the area, as you do find in these kind of stories. And he gave them his his humble provisions and gave them a, a, a meagre food of bread and a bit of water. And they, they were so impressed by his... Um, is offering that they basically overflew his um, cellar with, with bounty and stuff. And then Piast then became the king. So, this is this great story of kind of an overthrow of this evil, rich, ty- tyrannical leader with this kind of a humble wheelwright called um, Piast. Yeah, which is another wow. yeah, interesting story.
1: It's really all about keeping and consolidating power, isn't it?
2: That's it. Yeah. So, um, I never. So Despite the, the, the lineage, I was,
1: I was thinking as well, too, like if you mm. look at the monarchy in Russia. Um, mm. You know, around the time of Catherine the Great, there was some yeah. question as to whether the lineage actually continued. But you got to tell that story so people think it does continue.
2: Well, absolutely. And uh, so what you have actually with, with anyone who wants to overthrow the monarchy from the 15th, 16th century onwards is, is something called the divine right of kings to, to, to play with as well. And this is the idea, which goes back to that Polish story, the way that um, the kings are put there by God himself. And of course, if you're therefore challenging the king or the queen of, of that country, you are in a way taking on God, which you know, no one in a, in a very religious age wants to do. Um, and this was a big problem again in, in talking about England was was with Oliver Cromwell when he overthrew uh, Charles I. Um, there was this big thing at the time, you, you, know, you don't overthrow the, the, the king because he is there put there by God. Right. Um, so the way Cromwell uh, kind of sold that really to everyone was that he himself was a Puritan. He was the true kind of Protestant, whereas Charles I was, not unfairly, uh, you know, had very Catholic sympathies. So he he billed it as being a, you know, true Christianity versus false papist um, Christianity. Got to tell the story. Um, You've got to tell the story. And uh, going back to the charismatic leader, though, I mean, the, the English Revolution really collapsed after Cromwell's death, really. Um, I mean, there was there were there were hopes and attempts to put Cromwell's son as as a kind of like a, a monarch, a new monarchy, on the throne, but it didn't last, and so Charles II was um, put back on the throne as um, in the Restoration. But, Almost like a yeah. lesson
1: that you think George Washington learned, right? A couple of hundred years later. Um, Johnny, thank you so yeah. much for your time on that this morning.
2: No, thank you for having me again, and uh, have a great day.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It is time for us to have a little chat with Scott Shans. And Scott and I like to talk about, you know, stuff that everybody else is talking about at this time of the morning. And I don't know how we can't talk about this TikTok rental video, Scott.
3: People are are very, very upset about this. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's been taken down, this TikTok video that was put up by a real estate marketing company. But I have a little clip here just to sort of set the stage for you.
1: This is the neighborhood. This is a 200, yeah, 200 square foot apartment in downtown East Side. This is your living room. This is the price. This is your bedroom. This is your fridge
3: so what we're this looking at annoying, is yeah, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> and i think that's been a lot of people's reaction yes. to it as well but it's one of these it's meant to make it look like hey this is so cute and and modern and convenient and stuff there's lots of videos kind of like this uh on video platforms like youtube and tiktok and stuff where they show off like this is my life inside you know 500 square feet or whatever but what's so um I might go so far as to say offensive about this one is that when she says this is the price, she kind of puts her hands up and the price is shown in a graphic there. It's $2,000 for 200 square feet in a renovated micro suite in the Lotus Hotel, which is on the downtown east side. Nuts! It's absolutely nuts. So the way that this came to be, a Toronto investment firm has bought the Lotus Hotel and is converting the suites, which go usually between five and six hundred dollars per unit, uh, and renting them for between seventeen hundred and two thousand dollars a unit. Now, just some quick math here. For a long time, the standard in Vancouver had been rental space should be about three to four dollars a square foot. So two hundred square feet should be about six hundred dollars. It's gone up since you know that Kind of between three and four dollars now, so maybe six to eight hundred dollars. So this is well above double that. Now it's renovated and it's nice and it's cute and stuff, but people are just like, enough is enough. When are we gonna like say that th- this just cannot continue?
1: It's it was beyond like it was almost like it was making fun of the housing crisis. Like it almost seemed like a satire when I watched it because I thought you're advertising micro suites on the downtown east side. Yeah. For two th- And the worst part is that this Toronto investment company has also been trying to buy out the people who
3: are living in this building that's who've correct been living
1: there for years and years and years uh, and giving them like fifteen thousand dollars and telling them to go away
3: yeah because they know that they'll make that back in just a couple of months if they can rent it for this you know two thousand dollars but there are people that have been in there that have been paying you know five hundred six hundred dollars a month and they want to be able to keep doing that well, yeah which they should be able Absolutely. to do you know also,
1: what does this Toronto investment firm think that they are coming in here taking advantage of this housing crisis like that um, also how fast is that go
3: wrong for them yesterday? Yeah, and this is what I want to sort of point out, is how sort of out of touch these companies are. They made this video, you know, it's got the sex in the city music behind it, and the loft, like, it looks kind of cool, it looks like a place that if I lived in New York, I would be like, oh yeah, I could could fit my life in there. You know, she sits on the couch and says, this is the living room, and then she gets up from the couch and folds it out into a bed, like a Murphy bed, and she's like, and this is your bedroom! And of course, like, I get it, people live like that if you're single, and in your 20s or whatever. And then she leans over and this is a fridge and I'd like to be able to reach my fridge from my bed. I get that. But $2,000 for this, no one can afford it. It's just it's insane. And so, yeah, the video, the TikTok video has been pulled down and they're kind of they've kind of gone radio silent about this. Yeah. But how often does this happen that these companies that try to say, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to make this video and appeal to millennials and stuff. And they end up pulling it down because they're just so out of touch.
1: That's exactly it. So out of touch, didn't read the room, didn't, didn't, obviously didn't have anybody out here who would say to them, this might not be a good idea, you guys. This is a very bad idea. Uh, and I know we're going to have a lot of discussion about that too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And boy, Vaughn, that story really started it yesterday, the one that we were talking about. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it really did. It was interesting how quickly so many people got it right away what was wrong. You had a proposal to add eight spaces to a child care center next to a park in Vancouver, and the Board of Variants in Vancouver turned it down because a handful of neighbors protested that it would destroy the character of their neighborhood, create parking problems, and otherwise affect their quality of life. Now, eight children, supposedly they're going to be noisy when they're out playing in the (laughs) playgrounds across the street. Supposedly. I love the parking one, right? Like, the children are not using parking spaces. In fact, if you know anything about child care, you know what's actually happening is their parents are dropping them off in a rush and leaving the neighborhood immediately because they're late for work.
1: Yeah, they're not going to park their car there all life. day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
4: no. And the the quality of life, I mean, I I think I heard a lot of people hit the roof on that one. They're going Eight children are going to destroy the character of your neighborhood? This is ridiculous. Um, (laughs) You know, Vaughn, the thing
1: that gets me too is there's a lot of neighborhoods in Vancouver where people will complain that there are the sounds of no children, that there's nobody playing outside, that they're lifeless, that people aren't walking down the street, that it's not lively. I have heard that complaint in Vancouver neighborhoods more than anything else. And here you have the opposite. And apparently that's too much.
4: So my colleague Dan Fumano, who did the first piece and promised us part two, he's got part two in the paper today and a lot more information in there, points out that Vancouver has one of the worst records of providing childcare of any city in Canada. There's a shortage of 15,000 spaces, uh, pointing out that this thing was killed by eight people. So eight children, eight people. Who went to the Board of Variants and protested, and the board caved to them. And pointing out, you know, talk, Fomano talked to some parents who are trying to line up childcare in a city where there's damn little of it. And they're saying, you know, I'm working, I'm busy, I didn't even know about this. And so you didn't have eight parents needing childcare showing up at the Board of Variants. A meeting at one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, who's got time uh, you, for that? Yeah, you uh, the the people who look, <laughs> I I will I will stereotype my own slice of the demographic. The people who have time to go and lobby a board of variants to prevent a childcare center from opening in their neighborhood or expanding. Um, they have an awful lot of time on their hands and they have a lot of money as well, uh, in general. And so This is not a low-income neighborhood. This is where uh, people can organize themselves and did in this case. So there's plenty of grounds for the outrage. I will say the thing I found most refreshing was that my colleagues' excellent reporting on this got a lot of attention across our industry. An awful lot of people retweeted that story, expressed outrage and indignation, and Simi, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the city of Vancouver to reverse that decision.
1: Oh, no kidding! Uh, in fact, you know, because of Dan's great work, and people should read it, Dan Fumano, Vancouver Sun. Uh, we have Mike Klassen, Vancouver City Councilor, coming on in about half an hour. He's not happy about it. We're actually going to talk to one of the people who was opposed to it too, a little bit later in the show, and he can tell us for himself why he was so opposed. Oh, and also, a, it was it that's a brave person? That's I brave thought person. so. I thought so. Uh, well, we'll <laughs> I think find there's out, a mob right? With tarred feathers <laughs> out
4: there, <circling laughs> there's. Still looking for these people
1: two hours <laughs> to go on that one so we'll see what happens but also what was interesting was uh housing minister ravi Kalan's reaction
4: yeah so it is refreshing i have to say to find a, a cabinet minister who is well briefed on a breaking story and willing to provide a comment he's housing minister he's not the minister of child care but my colleague katie de rosa put the question to Kalan in the middle of another story yesterday and the minister came right back and he said look Uh, we have a big problem, which is a large number of neighborhoods that have no children in them because families can't afford to live there. And obviously, if you're going to have families living in a neighborhood, having convenient access to childcare is part of it. So he says, this is a ridiculous decision, speaking for an awful lot of people. And he said, The Board of Variants should reverse itself in Vancouver and recognize this was a mistake and reach a different decision. So that's a provincial cabinet minister sending a message. Good follow-up question. The follow-up question is, would the province consider stepping in? So the minister's careful. He says the government is getting ready this fall to expedite approval for housing projects in municipalities. We're getting legislation on that. We know what's coming. But he said, look, in the long run, if we're having trouble locating childcare centers in some of our municipalities, provincial government may have to step in and regulate that as well, which is, I think, a very important message to the city of Vancouver on this. I think, I think you're probably going to hear from the city that this Board of Variants was in place yes. before the ABC Council was elected. So, it's not their people. And it may just be the way the legislation is written now to protect single family neighborhoods' character that the Board of Variants reached the only decision it could reach.
1: Okay, so we will talk to Mike Lassen about that uh, coming up for sure. But it was interesting to hear, though, how quickly the provincial government responded to this. You don't often hear that.
4: Well, you don't. And, you know, we all have the experience in our industry of uh, asking for a comment from the ministry, and we get told the minister is not available, or we get a note back with a series of quotes that could be attributed to the ministry, but no follow-ups available, or you ask a minister a question live, and the minister says, well, it's not my ministry, you should talk to so-and-so. He didn't do, the housing minister didn't do that on anything. He was briefed, he took the question, and he gave us a good answer that you know, recognize that this is an important story, one with provincial implications in the long run. And the provincial government is well aware of this. And it may, if the city of Vancouver doesn't fix the problem, it may have to consider stepping in hmm. with legislation to make it easier to locate child care centers.
1: Can't let the day go on without getting some kind of transportation update between the mainland and the island.
4: Yes. Hello. Hello. There are uh, in service Wednesday, yesterday, everybody, well, a lot of people on the island anyway were going. Okay, how's this going to go? Passenger only service. Then I'm going to Vancouver, <laughs> seventy-minute run. That's pretty fast. A lot faster than ferries, and it's cheaper than ferries too. If you're driving, you can't take your car. But you can get over there one way, what, 40 to 60 bucks. So I think there's an awful lot of people on the island, Central Island particularly, Nanaimo, hoping this works. And it sounds like the first trip went well. Colleague uh, Les Lane, um, my counterpart at the Victoria Times columnist, took the ship over and back. And generally favorable. Les does, however, detail in his piece in the paper today, Simi, that. There have been a lot of failures in the past of attempts to provide a passenger-only ferry service between the island and the mainland. So understandable that people would be apprehensive and skeptical, even if they're hoping for the best.
1: Right. And there's, I mean, it's
4: a little bit different, right? It goes pretty fast. It goes fast. I, (laughs) you know, I I guess it makes sense. It's got seatbelts. Yeah. Uh, And he says, well, there's a reason for that. Uh, It hits 40 knots. Like, so... That's like 75 kilometers an hour. You're driving along a road in one of our towns and the ferry went past you because it's faster than you are. So, yeah, that's an issue. Uh, The other issue is weather and waves. These are catamarans. And one of the reasons they gave for not sailing on Monday and Tuesday was wave action. It was an unusual weather condition in the strait the strait can be very rough waters. So the question arises, well, hey, you can't handle the waves in August. What's it going to be like in November to February when the weather can be a lot rougher along the coast? Uh, The ferry service says uh, they think they can maintain service at roughly the same level as BC ferries. BC ferries has to cancel at times too, particularly on the Southern run because the Tawasson ferry terminal is exposed. So, they say they'll be able to compete uh, on reliability of service with BC ferries. Everybody on the island knows that there are days when BC ferries doesn't sail either. So, again, hmm. I wish them luck. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of questions out there, but I think, and I said this yesterday, I think, I think BC ferries would be happy if somebody could make a go of passenger service. think so, yeah. Because, but BC Ferries, the idea has been kicked around at BC Ferries as well that they should be thinking about this. Uh, the ferry service has its hands full providing vehicular traffic uh, and service and walk on passengers out of its existing terminals. I don't think there's any desire at BC Ferries to get into the passenger service business if some private company can make a go of it.
1: Okay, so speaking of which, though, let's talk That's, a little bit about BC ferries
4: here, too. <clears throat> so I see we have mechanical difficulties reported again today. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, a couple of services. I think one, uh, Coastal Renaissance, interrupted again. Uh, the other thing is a rumor mill, something that popped out this week. So the ferry corporation opened talks, wage talks, with the ferry workers union, early, 10 months early, and they did it because they've accepted that one of the challenges in attracting, attracting workers to the ferries is a wage gap and that wages haven't kept up uh, at a level necessary to attract unionized personnel at, at different levels. So the ferry said, okay, let's talk early about uh, contract talks, and they did enter into talks. The rumor mill, Sammy, says those talks are not going all that well, that the union has quietly been advising its members, saying don't make a big deal of it and go blab to the news media, but uh, the talks are not going well. They're at an impasse. So, you know, uh, supposition, the fairies came in with an offer to the union and the union went, doesn't begin to address the problem. So, well, it's early in the talks, and again, there's something that one hopes they can sort it out, because if the fairies can't attract uh, the skilled workforce for the future, we're going to have this constant problem that occurs where one person doesn't show up for work because they book in sick, or there's a vacancy, or there's no backup, And Transport Canada rules are rigid. You cannot sail without the full complement of crew. So uh, there's going to have to be an attention turned to those talks and if you know, in the long run, they're at an impasse. If they can't sort it out, I suppose it'll be what we always say in British Columbia: "Sammy, this is a job for Vince Reddy." <laughs> <laughs> well, he does get the job done, right? He got the transit strike yeah. done. So he does his his record is actually phenomenal, and uh, you know he's. Uh, He's not as old as me, but I, they must be. We should be thinking in British Columbia whether can we clone this guy, or, or you know, sort of preserve him uh, in some kind of means so that he's available to solve our labor problems in the future. Because he does seem to be the only uh, certainly the only well-known person. With the magic touch here in British Columbia.
1: Well, they've got time, right? As you said, this is they opened yeah. talks ten months early, and they should recognize that this is a problem that ferry systems are having everywhere, whether it's Washington State or across Canada, uh, attracting workers. So they're going to have to get really competitive.
4: Uh, Yes, that's true, Simeon. You know, again, it in in many ways is a problem right across the economy. We are seeing shortages in any number of areas. I, I think a couple of things happened. For a long time, we've been hearing warnings from people who study the workforce that the aging population means that sooner or later, the boomers are going to retire. And they're retiring in significant numbers. And that process may may well have been accelerated by the pandemic. I think we've seen some evidence of that too. So you've got uh, a shortfall in the workforce that wasn't there in the past. So, yeah, there's an awful lot of competition for these jobs as well. And I think that's another thing the ferries are up against. So full credit to the Ferry Corporation for realizing it, starting the talks early and I guess when you think about it, you know, the employer comes in with an offer and the union goes, you're not close to being what it needed. That's the nature of bargaining as well. So we shouldn't get into too much of a panic yet.
1: All right. Thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simmy. That is Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy.
5: Such a need in this community, in the city for daycares, for families. Um, and here we are trying to open just a small one of eight children and just got shut down and denied by the city and the neighbourhood.
1: Oh, boy, this story has hit a nerve, hasn't it? That's Lisa McCormick, the owner of a daycare with eight kids in the Douglas Park neighbourhood of Vancouver. Now, she was speaking on the Jazz Hall show yesterday. She recently applied to open another eight spaces of childcare and the Board of Variants turned her down because of vehement opposition from her neighbours. And some of their reasons, as you've heard, too much noise from children too much of a business in a residential area. I mean, this is a childcare facility. It's across the street from a very big and very busy park too. And it got me thinking about my neighborhood and the sounds of kids running around yelling and playing in their front yards. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing on my street and people comment on it when they come over to my house and they say how great it is because it really, it really is. It, it kind of shows you how vibrant the neighborhood is. But apparently little kids playing outside for two hours each day was too much for some of the neighbours in that particular neighbourhood. I could go on and on and on about this. But as I say, the story has struck a nerve, including with Vancouver City councillors who are now questioning this decision from the Board of Variants. So let's talk to Mike Klassen, ABC Vancouver City Councillor, about this, who joins us now. Thanks for being here.
6: Yeah, good morning, Simmy.
1: What did you think when you heard about this story?
6: Uh, my first reaction was, wow. Uh, I actually thought it was kind of depressing. Uh, But then I decided to uh, follow up with our city staff and just say, is there a way that we can revisit this? It was it was clearly a decision that was uh, uh, made with a lot of pressure from, you know, an active group. And I thought it was maybe something that we need to take another look at.
1: Okay, well, how does that happen then? Because the Board of Variants, it's an independent board, isn't it? How can council intervene with that?
6: Well, um, that's the question that I put back to city staff. And I think experience shows that it may come back to council directly, um, as it was something that went through staff. And of course, it went through the board of variants. So, uh, but I think we have uh, the, the tools the, the, in, in our toolkit as, as city council to do something about it.
1: Okay, so can you foresee that happening then? You want to bring that back to council?
6: Well, I think what we want to do is we want to make sure that uh, things like this don't ever happen again. What uh, you know, what we sort of inherited is a, a very complex and sometimes Byzantine uh, sort of model for creating childcare spaces that is uh, creates a lot of deterrence and makes it very difficult for people to create new spaces. Uh, for example, the, the the whole parking issue is kind of weaponized in this uh, in this uh, particular issue at the Ron Douglas Park that sort of commercial or that sort of that parking requirement is something that it really is a legacy of when these childcare spaces were more sort of set up in commercial areas. This is a residential area. The, the drop-off time for a typical person um, uh, picking up or uh, leaving their child at a childcare is about three minutes. Uh, so this is not something where you're talking about gridlock. You're, you're talking about a very quick uh, use of the street in the front. So I think we have um, uh, really, uh, again, a system that is, um, of course, we want to make sure that it's safe. We don't want to make sure that uh, there, there are any uh, concerns around the safety of the children in childcare spaces. Um, but we work in partnership with Vancouver Coastal Health and the two agencies between the City of Vancouver and the licensing and the Health Authority. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong in terms of being able to get the get spearhead and get that thing through. Um, that's another uh, piece that we need to work on. but. The good thing is that when we got into Council, one of the first things that we we moved was uh, Councillor Lisa Dominato uh, put forward a motion that was supported unanimously to uh, harmonize the City of Vancouver's uh, regulations with those of the provincial government. So at least we're sort of uh, have staff working on making sure that we're doing that. And then, of course, is just the creation of spaces itself, which is something that's ongoing. But uh, I'm feeling very optimistic about the number of new spaces that we're creating as well.
1: Okay, so what do you say then to those neighbors who quite clearly were very opposed to this?
6: I think we need to uh, put everything in balance. I mean, I appreciate some of the concerns that they they raised, but... That, you know the the rhetoric that was being used to make it sound like that this is going to be a, a new industrial zone because of the extra eight children was uh, it was clear hyperbole and and uh, and I think that the board of Variants themselves um, uh, probably felt a huge amount of pressure. I mean, normally they're they're regulating on a you know the, the size of a, a patio deck, not necessarily an issue as, as charged as this one. So I think again we'll. Have a chance to uh, kind of balance those things. And, and uh, I, I believe that, uh, again, we're waiting to get some response back from our city's uh, staff. Uh, it was something that I asked for yesterday. So uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll know probably in the next 24 hours, what tools we have in our toolkit to, to revisit this.
1: Does the city of Vancouver then need to make it easier to open up more childcare spaces in the city?
6: 100%. We have, again, we have so many barriers, we have so many costs, if you want to make a change, for example, a change of use to include a few more, you have to pay several thousand dollars. Um, this is kind of, it seems to me, a very outdated and, and ill-considered policy that I think uh, council will definitely have a chance to to take a look at and maybe ask for some changes. I mean, when I was out door knocking a year ago during the election campaign, I went to neighborhoods that were complete deserts of, of child care. And people just saying, get me some child care spaces so I can, I can operate, I can function, I can go to work, I can, I can actually run my life in a, in a very unaffordable city. So it is a huge priority for our council. Uh, the ABC platform has a commitment of creating 5,000 new child care spaces, which will uh, do, go a long way to try and address the problem.
1: Right. So how do you balance that then? Because clearly people who are opposed in some areas can be pretty vocal. <sighs>
6: Well, um, when you're in discussion with Vaughn Palmer earlier, he made it uh, he made a, a very good point. I mean, it's not everybody that can come out to uh, a, a Board of variance uh, meeting in the middle of the afternoon. I think this is a situation where, again, uh, on balance, you just need to, um, again, respect uh, the needs of the community and, and those are um, uh, and, and also the need for more childcare spaces. And again, this is not to dismiss the, the concerns outright of, of the people who complained. Um, But again, we have to strike a balance here. And if there are ways to mitigate some of the concerns, let's let's find a positive solution that works for everybody.
1: Well, we'll wait to hear what happens. then. thank you so much for your time.
6: You bet. Thanks, Amy.
1: That's Mike Classen, ABC Vancouver City Council responding to this child care story in the Douglas Park neighborhood, saying fully expects Vancouver City Council to, you know, try to revisit this and saying that it should be easier to open childcare spaces in the city of Vancouver. Now we're not done talking about this because later on in the show we hope to hear from one of the people who spoke at that Board of Variants meeting, very much in opposition to this childcare facility, uh, you know, expanding by eight spaces in this location. So we'll find out what they're thinking about the reaction to all of this too. And yeah, brave for coming on or agreeing to come on anyway, hopefully it'll happen. Uh, But we want to hear why they were so opposed to this. And do those concerns seem, I guess, reasonable to the rest of us, right? When yeah, there is such a demand for childcare out there. So if you want to weigh in, Let's hear from you on this. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzzline line 604-331-2899. I mean, as I was saying earlier, a neighborhood that doesn't have the sound of kids playing in it is not a lively, vibrant place. There's lots of those neighborhoods in Vancouver and people complain about it when there's nothing going on. And now people complain about it when there's too much going on. So where is the balance there? More to come on that story for sure.
0: I love that song so much,
1: and when you listen to the words, it is still so incredibly relevant today. Scott Chance is with us now, don't
3: you think so, Scott? Oh, I, first of all, I love Dolly, love her song. and it. I like how you say it; it's still relevant today because, in some cases, nothing changes, right? That's right. Yeah, and that's interesting because. Um, so I saw this great article in the Globe and Mail about one of the problems, or one of the maybe the solution to the problems that we're having lies in our lack of entrepreneurial ability in Canada. Essentially, the author of this article is saying, we're not entrepreneurs in Canada, and we never have been, and that's part of why we're in the economic state that we're in. So the author's name is Scott Stirrett, and he's the CEO and founder of a, a charity called Venture for Canada. And what they do is to try to help people reach their entrepreneurial goals, which is kind of a cool thing for a charity to do. But I want I wanted to ask him about this article that he wrote and, I mean, just basically straight up said, we lack entrepreneurial ability as Canadians. Is that is that true, Scott? Is that what you actually think?
5: We do lack an entrepreneurial culture and in many ways we have always lacked an entrepreneurial culture, at least in kind of the modern sense of Canada as a, as a nation. Um, so one of the things that I think is um, uh, important uh, to note uh, is that from the very beginning, Canada, what, in terms of our modern history, we were a hierarchical uh, society. Uh, that Canada was a place where loyalists uh, fleeing the American Revolution, who were loyal to the King of England, uh, decided uh, to uh, to come and settle. Uh, and likewise, um, in terms of uh, French Canada or and Quebec, um, the Catholic Church uh, had significant influence for a long time, and it also was quite a hierarchical society. So when we flash forward to the present day, Uh, the roots of Canadian society uh, are uh, a deference to authority. But even when you look at the British North America Act, and uh, it specifically says uh, peace, order, and good government, that's a huge difference than New Hampshire's slogan of live uh, free or die. Uh, And I think when we look at Canada today is that Canadians as a people are insufficiently entrepreneurial because of these historical reasons, but also because of the fact that we are a country blessed in so many ways Um, including the fact um, that we are in a pretty safe area of the world, we have a huge amount of natural resources, uh, and in many ways we as Canadians don't need to take huge risks compared to a lot of other countries in the world because we have a lot of good things um, going for us. So all this to say is that uh, Canada has an insufficiently entrepreneurial culture for a variety of historical and geographic uh, reasons. Uh, and that this is not a new problem. This is a challenge that has existed in, like, in Canadian society for centuries.
3: So how, like, how does this affect the economy?
5: Yeah, how it affects the economy is a, a myriad of different uh, ways. Um, the first is that Canadian labor productivity is growing at an insufficient rate, that it's actually decreasing. And what is labor productivity? Labor productivity is essentially how much does the average Canadian earn on an hourly basis? Uh, and that, in fact, when you actually look at 10 of the last 11 quarters based on SASCAN data, our labor productivity has been going down. And what does that mean is basically Canadians are earning less for every hour worked, even though everything is getting more expensive, from housing to transportation to food. And how does an entrepreneurial culture contribute to this? Uh, a lack of an entrepreneurial culture uh, results in a situation where there's not enough new ventures that are being uh, created. There's not enough new business or not enough big businesses that are um, thinking about changing things up or doing things in a more efficient way. Uh, And just to put the problem in perspective to kind of close this off is that the average Canadian earns around 26% less than the average American. And to put it in perspective, the average per capita income in Ontario is roughly equivalent to Alabama, which is one of the poorest states per capita in the United States. A lack of entrepreneurial culture um, results in uh, de- a decline in the long term in terms of Canadians' living standards um, and an increasing inability to pay for things like high quality health care or high quality transportation infrastructure.
3: What can people do? If people, like, sort of like me, it's like, I get this. My, like, my dad w- was super entrepreneurial. Um, but we've talked to him and I have talked about this a lot. It's like, he understands why it's so much harder for me because of the risk and the money and all of that type of stuff. Are, do you have suggestions or I love how you said it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, in founding or creating like a business or a, a company, what, where can people start and how can we grow this entrepreneurial spirit in Canada?
5: I think risk taking is a muscle that you can grow over time, just like if someone wants to, grow, you know, work out in the gym. And I think that um, if somebody wants to build that kind of entrepreneurial risk taking, start by taking small risks. And each day, each day, try to think, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk. And then eventually, a year later, two years of taking risk, your appetite for what is a risk that you're comfortable in taking will significantly grow. So just that there's one point a takeaway for listeners is. Think around what are little risks you can take each day that help you build that risk-taking muscle over time.
3: Okay, that's Scott Stewart. He's the CEO and founder of Venture for Canada, and he has this article in the Globe and Mail about the reason that we're in the economic situation we're in is because there's not enough entrepreneurs in our country. What do you think, Simi? Are we not taking enough risks? You know,
1: I think that's been um, something I've heard about Canadians before. That I mean, that's just in our nature, I think perhaps, you know, we are a little bit more careful like we we tend to like that about ourselves, but does that mean it's a bad thing when it comes to not being? Not, I don't know. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, lots of people who start up business every single day
3: here. See, and that that's kind of how I feel about it too. But you know, he kind of mentions the numbers, like we, we only make twenty six per or twenty six percent less than every American makes, like sort of in labor dollars, just on an average. Like that number to me is a little bit scary. That and, our, and
1: we have more rules and regulations about what you're allowed to do in this country, and that's that. So that I mean,
3: that's there's a reason for that. But but if all of that is what's contributing to like us not being able to afford to live in our own country, I do kind of think that we need to need to stretch those muscles and push out a little bit. But the idea of taking risks, like like I you know we sort of talked about at the end there, I'm not good at it. You know, because if I if you take a risk and you fail, like there goes your house. You know.
1: Well, that's a, well, that's a good point. In a housing crisis, right? Are the risks too big? Have they become too big now? You can't just you know. It's a great point. Start all over again, like you used to be able to. Scott, thank you for that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi a very stressful time
1: right now for residents of areas like Yellowknife and even in the central Okanagan where there are quite a few evacuations going on due to wildfires. In Yellowknife, we're talking about a city of 20,000 people that are being told to leave, all of them. Uh, they were ordered to start evacuating yesterday because of nearby wildfires there, and they need residents to leave by noon Friday. Now, the fire is not yet completely a threat, but what they know is that things are expected to change on Friday. High winds are coming to the area. They think that that could cause the fire to get too close to the city, and at that point, it would be too late to get everybody out. So they're doing this in phases. They are moving everyone out. I mean, that's a huge... Undertaking twenty thousand people right out of Yellowknife when there's very limited options to get out, and then you look at the what five thousand properties in the Central Okanagan as of this morning under evacuation order as well. So it's a very challenging time, and these kinds of plans have to be in place. You can't just at the last minute figure out and put out, come up with an idea of how to evacuate people. That's actually what our next guest is going to talk about. Dr. Sarah Gradora is a researcher in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Vermont. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It, how long does it take, do you think, to really put into place or, or plan for an evacuation in the case of a wildfire?
7: You know, it's, it's really tricky because with these fast-moving wildfires that we're seeing, which are um, caused by the fast-moving winds that you're just talking about, um, there's a lot of uncertainty about how long we actually need to get people out safely.
1: And so, where do you even start? Then, what are, what are the first
7: things that we should yeah. consider? Yeah, exactly. So, a lot of uh, local emergency managers and everything already have plans in place. Um, but when weather like this happens, a lot of time there is a lot of uncertainty about when to make alerts and orders mandatory or not. And um, my research, which was uh, looking at a no do- no notice, fast moving wildfire, the Campfire. Which happened in Paradise, California, um, we noticed that people actually, um, because because everything happens so quickly, um, people really need to be really aware of what's going on. Um, the reality is that sometimes emergency communications they might not work perfectly, especially in these really fast-moving wildfires where we do we don't have a ton of data on on how we can plan for them right now because it's kind of a newer phenomenon. And that kind of data is also really hard to get because people disperse after wildfires. So knowing how people are going to be able to move, how people can move safely is kind of hard to know. And it's also once we do get to talk to people after these um, events, their memory can also kind of distort.
1: Right. You you mentioned the Paradise Fire there in California. That was a big learning experience, wasn't it? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it really was. Okay, and so what can we take from that? Like, what do we need to make sure to do in the future that wasn't done there?
7: Um, yeah, so, so that's a really tough question. Um, so there, some issues happen. so in my, in my research, the people that we surveyed, only 1% actually became aware of the wildfire by an evacuation notice. Um, most people um, became aware of the fire by just seeing it firsthand. So just from my experience um, and my research, I think people really should be aware of what's going on, especially with these fast moving winds, which just can make everything turn uh, totally different and just make everything really urgent. But we found that um, earlier awareness of the fire was associated with higher income, people who had smartphones, people who were previously aware of these evacuation plans and people who are younger, um, and then we also found that, that the earlier departure time, again, was associated with um, knowing about the wildfire earlier, so being aware about it earlier, having a smartphone, um, and so if you can really stay alert to what's going on and have a plan for yourself, I think that is going to be really important for a lot of people, and that includes having a to-go bag, having your phone charged, having a portable radio, because as we saw in the campfire and again in the Maui fires, that just happened, what, last week? Um, you can lose phone service. So be prepared for that.
1: Well, that's what I was wondering about, too, is that it's hard to you know, push all these alerts out to your phone when people lost power yeah. very quickly in that Maui fire and said that they got no notice of what was going on.
7: Exactly, and that is not the fault of anybody. This is, again, everyone is doing their best to keep people safe right now in these events. Um, but, yeah, I talked to people after the campfire who, again, they all the evacuation notices came to their phone like hours later than they should have because cell towers went down. So people um, can need to be aware of that to protect themselves. And if you can have some kind of portable radio if your phone isn't working, at least you can stay aware of what's going on.
1: Right. And another
7: issue. Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was going (laughs) to say, yeah, what is another issue?
7: Yeah, like um, another issue is people who are unequally exposed to the risk of wildfires. So let's say people who are renting, people who might be in mobile homes, people who don't have vehicles and people who are unhoused. So a lot of and people who maybe don't aren't the best with mobility. So maybe elderly people, people who have mobility issues. So a lot of special planning goes into that. Um, and so if you are one of those people, um, I would again suggest, you know, having a plan for yourself. If if you can't, uh, get help like nearby, um, you know, maybe think about your plans for the next few days. And if you can stay with someone or stay with family, because what we saw in the campfire, um, a lot of people were waiting for people to help come get them. And a lot of times that didn't come because they were um, impeded by the wildfire. So they had to, you know, just jump in a car with whoever they could, which is not ideal. So if you can kind of plan ahead, we know these fast winds are coming.
1: So the other problem here as well, isn't it that people don't want to leave or they think nah, it's going to be fine. All All the other times it's been like the boy who cried wolf, right? Like I don't really need to go.
7: Exactly. That's another problem. Um, and it's, again, it's not even a problem. It's just what happens. You know, a lot of people, and I don't, I have not, I will I will explain, I have not done a ton of research in Canada, but I know in communities in the United States, in Australia, a lot of people who have lived in those areas a long time have experienced tons of wildfires. So it's not really something new to them. Um, and they, they don't want to stay. They don't want to leave. Um, and we saw this in the campfire. Um, a lot of people were trying to stay um, and protect their homes. And then they ended up having a more perilous evacuation because they had to leave at the last moment.
1: Right. So if you're in the vicinity where wildfires happen, I feel like this is something that you should discuss. Kind of like here in BC, we always talk about having a plan for an earthquake, any area where there's a wildfire zone. You should, you should have a plan for what you're going
7: to do. That's Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. And, and yeah, if you don't have, like I mentioned having a vehicle, if you do not have a vehicle, Um, try to make a plan ahead of time, um, with people who are geographically near to you, um, who can, who might be experiencing the same thing you're going to be going through and can, they can easily help you. And if you cannot do that, um, then, you know, possibly try to, um, change your plans for like the next few days when there is this really high risk.
1: Right. But being aware, Dr. Cordura sounds like the biggest issue here, right? And take it seriously
7: yeah definitely take it seriously and emergency managers and planners are really trying their best but again the science and technology is still trying to catch up with how we can deal with these fast-moving fires so i'm um, just going to be falling on people to be self-aware of what is going on and yeah take it very seriously especially with these highlands
1: no kidding all right thank you so much for your time this morning I appreciate it. That's Dr. Sarah Godura, who's a researcher in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Vermont and has studied the issue of wildfire evacuation plans and how more and more communities need this. And it pays to take any threat seriously, essentially. Look at what's happening in Yellowknife this morning. Uh, the entire city is on evacuation order. 20,000 people leaving Yellowknife. They're doing it in phases. Uh, They are telling people like exactly what the deal is, what's going on, uh, that on Friday, they expect the winds to really kick up. And at that point that it could be close to the highway, which is the kind of one way out there. uh, And so they need people to start going now. And people are, are, are going, they are listening, they are packing up and they are going. So there's a very close eye on that. You've got Evacuation orders happening right now in the central Okanagan, something like 5,000 properties, in the uh, central Okanagan part of West Kelowna area, uh, obviously a very serious focus there too. Nobody wants to see what happened in Maui happen here. People who spent hours in a pool at a condominium complex because the whole thing was on fire around them and there was no way for them to get out. I've read so many stories where people had to do that or spend you know hours sitting in the ocean. We're starting to hear those stories come out now too. And so that's why the evacuation plan is so important.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So what will it take to inject some sanity into the housing crisis in Metro Vancouver? Every level of government talks about it, but is every level of government willing to get involved? Now, the federal government yesterday announced $500 million to help build housing in Vancouver, near transit centres, no less. So how is this going to work? Well, we had a chance to ask the housing minister, Sean Fraser, about that. Well, Minister Fraser, thank you for being here. First off, tell us about this announcement. How is the federal government going to help with our housing crisis here in Vancouver?
8: Uh, look, Vancouver is a- an incredible place uh, for the people who can afford to live here. Uh, I've been here for the last couple of days, meeting with local residents, with municipal leaders, with provincial leaders, uh, and with people in the housing sector to understand what the needs are. And, and what they told me loud and clear is they want the federal government to play a leadership role. And that's not just yelling about housing and trying to pick fights with other levels of government. That's about getting together and treating this like a Team Canada all-hands-on-deck moment to actually get more housing built. The kinds of things that we're able to do are to help not only uh, fund projects that are designed to help the most vulnerable, though we must do that too, but actually change the nature of how we support housing to create more opportunities for people at different price points. Uh, I met with a young woman this morning who lives more than an hour away from where she works simply because she can't afford to live in the community where she goes to work. Uh, I met a guy a couple of days ago uh, in Burnaby uh, who told me that he's got an apartment now, and he, he has a good job, by the way, but he's afraid that if they take his building down to put up a luxury condo like they have in every other building in his neighborhood, he won't have a place to go. Uh, today's announcement that we've made A $500 million uh, uh, financial arrangement that's going to put up nine new projects is going to create uh, homes for more than 1,100 families. And the best part is these homes are going to be offered at a price that are below what the market is currently offering. I see this article saying the average one bedroom is going for $3,000 a month right now. That's not reasonable for a young person trying to find work. It's not reasonable for a person who's lost the apartment they had, they can't simply move into something like that. But by actually putting money on the table, we can change the economics of projects and get more rental units built, get more homes built for families at a price they can actually afford so they can see a future for themselves in the city that they love.
1: Okay. Now, Minister Fraser, that all sounds really good, but forgive us if we say we've kind of heard announcements like this before. So how will this be different? How, how will you determine what the market, you know, the, what the rental rate is actually going to be?
8: So there's two parts to your question. Look, how is this different from before and what what is the rental going to actually be? Uh, How it's going to be different is that uh, we, in 2017, advanced a national housing strategy. And the motivation at that time was to respond to the fact that for several decades, federal governments of different partisan stripes had walked away from housing as a policy area that they took seriously. Uh, We wanted to address the need back then step into the social housing space primarily so we could make sure that the most vulnerable people in our communities had a roof over their head and we were attacking the homelessness crisis with the seriousness that it deserved. And we are on track to eliminate chronic homelessness by 2030, but one of the things that I've observed that requires a new and different kind of approach is over the last number of years, the housing needs are not just about the most vulnerable. We need to support them, but we also need to recognize the reality that there's a lot of working families that can't afford a place to live in the communities where they go to work. By actually making uh, investments that are going to change the economics for the people who put these buildings up, we can convince them to offer it at a lower price point that is still in the market. This is not uh, just for low-income families. It's for people who have a job that want to have a place to live. The way that we actually help control the price so we can offer more homes at more reasonable prices is by making an agreement in exchange for leveraging the federal financing opportunities, we can actually uh, insist that the price is going to be offered based on what median wages allow for families to pay in a city. Today's announcement, for example, each of the nine different projects are going to have units at 30% of the median household income, as well as units that are offered at different price points below that. This may mean that a family who's going to work uh, will actually have the ability to pay rent at the, at the homes that we are now putting up. Uh, there's not a simple solution to our housing challenges, but by actually exchanging the federal financing ability for commitments to offer uh, units and homes at price points that people can afford, we can make sure that people who go to work every day that might not be amongst the wealthiest Canadians can still afford a place to call home. And I don't think that's too much to ask.
1: Okay, where, where is the sign-up sheet for this? I'm sure a lot of people are asking. And what is the timeline like?
8: So the Rental Construction Financing Initiative is the name of the program. If you want to look for details, you can visit it online. Uh, We work with communities in real time on an ongoing basis to fund more and more of these projects. Uh, The CNOC project that garnered a lot of attention not just in Vancouver but across Canada and around the world is actually only made possible as a result of the Rental Construction Financing Initiative that's going to add more than 6,000 homes and apartments in the city. Uh, This is an amazing uh, opportunity for us to continue to work with local governments, to work with developers, to work with provincial governments, to address the unique needs of housing in their communities. I have enormous hope uh, for our ability to use this program to leverage the uh, uh, private capital that exists by changing the economics of a project so they can reduce the rental price so more families can afford it. Uh, Now, we, we need to maintain programs that offer direct subsidies for social housing, But with this kind of an approach, we're able to tackle a different place in the market so people who have a job also can afford a place to live.
1: Okay, so then what does that mean? Does that mean, so these sites haven't been picked yet? Is it going to be incumbent upon the City of Vancouver to select these sites? Do private developers have to come to you and say, we would like this funding? How does this work?
8: So this particular announcement today involves nine distinct projects and the buildings are already identified, the properties are identified, the number of units are identified. There's actually 1,112 units that will be uh, uh, built as a result of today's announcement. Uh, But the initiative more broadly uh, can take uh, applications, uh, typically working with local governments and developers, uh, to identify what the right opportunities are in their particular community. So today's announcement is not the only project Uh, that we're going to be working on in this city to help build more homes at prices that people can afford. Uh, But if developers and local governments want to work with the federal government to actually build homes in the market at a lower price point than the market currently offers, I'd suggest that they work with us and CMHC through the Rental Construction Financing Initiative. The details are all online, and if they want to uh, uh, connect with the federal government or CMHC, I would invite them to do so uh, as soon as they're able.
1: So, Minister Fraser, is this a change in approach for the federal liberal government? We know there was a lot of controversy a couple of weeks ago with with Prime Minister Trudeau saying that, you know, technically it's not the federal government's priority to deal with housing. This certainly seems like, though, going back 30 years when they did deal with housing.
8: So, look, i point you to the second half of the sentence where he said we can and we must help. Um, I've learned over the course of my time as a Member of Parliament over the last eight years that when one of my constituents shows up in my office and says that they're having a problem with the health care system, they don't want me to say that this is the province's problem to deal with. They want to hear how I'm going to help them, how I'm going to call my provincial counterparts, how I'm going to work federally to help change the provincial rules by creating incentives for other levels of government to change the way that they do things. This is a big part of the approach that I hope to take going forward. I'm not just going to resign myself to the fact that we've got a lot of money on the table and we're gonna deploy it to build more social housing. We can and we must do that as well. But I just see immense need for people who are working that don't have any units to rent. Even the people who could presumably afford it are often dealing with a situation where there's no units available. Uh, By actually working with communities to develop local solutions to their housing challenges, we're going to be able to address that other portion of the market that is currently missing for people who might not be wealthy but still go to work every day and can't find a place they can afford. This is a a, a new approach and a new focus that I hope to take during my time in this position and I'm convinced that I can have a meaningful impact that is going to help real families find real homes and real communities.
1: Well thanks for your time on that today.
8: A pleasure and uh, look forward to our next conversation.
1: Sean Fraser, Federal Housing Minister of Canada and as I say with announcements like that we'll see won't we
0: whether that makes a difference. This is Mornings with Simi.
6: The rhetoric that was being used to make it sound like that this is going to be a, a new industrial zone because of the extra eight children was uh, it was clear hyperbole. And I think, again, we'll have a chance to uh, kind of balance those things. And I believe that uh, I'll know probably in the next 24 hours what tools we have in our toolkit to, to revisit this.
1: All right. That is Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen talking about this story that really seems to have gotten people all fired up in the last 24 hours. It started with Dan Fumano from the Vancouver Sun writing about a proposal for child care centre expansion from eight spaces to 16 in the Douglas Park neighbourhood of Vancouver. It went to the Board of Variants, where some neighbours turned up to oppose it quite strongly. And so the board turned it down. Now, that kind of simplifies the situation, but as we all know, it is much more complicated than that, right? Uh, Cries of nimbyism and concerns about we're not approving enough childcare spaces and how this is across the street from a park. And, you know, why didn't people like the idea of having children, you know, playing outside? So many things that are going on with this. So we've heard a lot about the people who are upset about the decision, but let's talk about the people who supported this decision, who didn't want to have this childcare there. We thought, let's hear that side of the story, too. So, Jim Leto is with us now, a principal of Urban Design and Developing Consulting Limited, uh, who is one of those neighbors. Uh, thanks so much for being here this morning.
9: Oh, yes. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation.
1: Uh, well, Jim, why did you oppose this?
9: Yeah, it's interesting um, the way you characterize it that he opposes daycare, because I think in this case, uh, as you realize, there was daycare already in the uh, site. Yes, it was half and half. There was like uh, eight children there already. So it was mixed use. It was residential and daycare. And in this case, what i got to say is, I mean, I support, I think probably everybody in the city supports daycare. The issue is um, how much daycare should go in any one building in any one site. In this case, um, it was a discretionary use uh so um uh, it was not an outright use uh and people there uh, were they were all coexisting yes and in this case i think it it actually it tilted the balance the scales when the application was basically for 100% institutional use uh whereas before it was already 50% See, the park is surrounded you know as you realize Douglas park is surrounded by residential use and uh, I think when people moved in that district, um, that's what they expected it to be, because uh, they were moving in a residential district, albeit with a nice park and community center. Uh, when you start um, changing the edges, uh, then the question is like, how much, how much of a change uh, is um, is acceptable to the to the neighbors, and before it changes. The character of the district,
1: but Jim, this and, wasn't like a, a, a business or a motorcycle shop, like one of the residents yeah. said. This is this is just a chunk. This is just kids playing, which kids are playing all the time in that neighborhood.
9: Oh yeah, and and that's why it's it's considered as a discretionary use, which is acceptable to consider mm-hmm. eh, as a discretionary use because it's it's compatible with uh, with residential. Uh, I guess the way I would put it is. Um, there are many uses which are uh, which people uh, like and accept and, and favor, and I think child care is one of them. But the question is, with any development, there's two issues. One is location, and the other one is how much of it. And in this case, I think the issue was, uh, uh, sure, location on the edge of a park, that's fine. But then on the issue of how much... Uh, that's when it, becomes, uh, it became an issue that affected the neighbors from but, experience that they already had there.
1: But you can't control how many people come and play at that park that is right in front of you. And you know, lots of kids show up there, and you can't control oh, yeah. that. And you said yourself no. there's no problems with the daycare. So I don't understand why you think there would have been well, problems. Well, with
9: the use, the use of daycare. There is, in this case, the issue of the scale of daycare. And, and as you say, you can't control it. and that's people love the park, and that's fine, it's a very healthy sign. But on the issue of individual sites which have been uh, zoned as uh, residential, I think this is RS7, um, the, the zoning then prescribes a list of outright and conditional uses. And in that case, then the the neighborhood and the planning department and council, for that matter, all have a say. And, you know, what what can be on an individually zoned site, which is zoned for residential.
1: So eight kids, eight more kids or 20 kids, 30 kids playing across the street at the park is OK with you, but just not eight kids on that side of the street.
9: The site is zoned. So, I mean, the way I would put it is this is residential zoning and it has a set of rules for the residential. Um What I'm hearing and seeing from this discussion with this is that perhaps if the council feels that the uh, use, the the, uh, child care use, uh, is an important one. And I've heard, good heavens, I've heard from Mr. Fermano in a discussion with him as well, that he feels that child care is such a uh, needed facility in the city, people are moving out of town because they can't get it. So what I'm suggesting to you, like, it needs to be uh, processed in a different way, other than discretionary use. And for example, I give you, for example, you could take single-family, uh, two-family zoning, for example, and make um, a ch- child daycare as an outright use. For example which
1: it sounds like they're going to do it's sounds from well, councilor Mike Klassen we heard earlier it sounds well, like that's exactly what's going to
9: happen. if it is it is an identified pressing need i say that's you know that's in a good direction but then i say at the same time uh, you would also put guardrails on that for example to say how how many per block hmm, uh, would be uh, acceptable for uh, child care use and what scale so for example Um, In other parts of the city, for other uses, you might have, for example, they'd say, all right, one outright, yes, but a a maximum of one facility per face block. And the the facility may have a maximum of, I'll say, sake of argument, eight or ten kids. So at that point, then, the neighborhood would understand, everybody would understand, and a potential operator would understand when they go in. What are the caps? The problem with, the, I'll say, the discretionary Did, review is it's this, like lightning striking.
1: This is all very bureaucratic, though, Jim. Do you understand why people are upset about this, though?
9: Oh, it's, it's a use that they, they, they love and they favor, and me too. Yeah. But the question is, when you move into a district, there's an issue of something new coming into something existing. And all of a sudden, then, you look at the relationship between what is new And how it affects the host. But this wasn't really
1: something new.
9: Uh, Well, it's a different land use than was there before. But it was allowed.
1: This was just a small variance. I'm I'm, I'm saying
9: in this case, it was like a a smaller scale. It was eight eight, eight children. Uh, But I'm just saying they were wanting to alter, say, a 50 percent institutional use to 100 percent.
1: But Jim, what's going to happen here now is, as we heard from Councillor Mike Klassen, and it sounds very okay. much like the city is going to come in and say, all right, we're going to make it easier now for these spaces to be put into neighbourhoods. So it's going to be the opposite okay. of everything you were saying.
9: No, I, not at all, because I'm saying when you make a zoning change, for example, you amend the zoning schedules to make it outright for particular use, any particular use which the city has a dire need for, um, then all of a sudden... It goes to council. It's a public hearing. All the neighborhoods look at that, and then they have their input as to the specifics of the zoning amendment. And in this case, i got to say, if they just said, all right, it's outright anywhere in the city, I would say, um, given the kind of, uh, I'm going to say off that happens from the activities in the daycare, if you had four daycares side by side in a single-family district, uh, I-, I think that would be... Uh, uh, traumatic for the neighborhood Traumatic.
1: Block. You think that if would you be had, traumatic to have if too you had many?
9: Four, if you had four in a row, yes, lined up in a row, one beside <laughs> each other.
1: Jim, nobody is saying that, though. This is one daycare center that wow. was already operating, and, and the owner says nobody ever came to her. No, none of the neighbors ever came to her and said, listen, we have a problem with this. Like, why didn't that happen? Why not talk to her about it?
9: Well, in this case, I say that the processing through the city... I uh, was at fault because it wound up at the Board of Variants, and the Board of Variants wounding up being sort of a, a backstop for all the uh, complaints, the concerns, whatever, in the operation. Whereas, If, if this was put in as an as amendment to the zoning bylaw, all these issues would be discussed up front at council, and incorporated as guidelines with the new zoning.
1: Jim, can you understand, though, the way you're talking about it, and I understand this is your line of work. You're in urban design, so you deal a lot with the city and the bylaws and the zoning and all of those things. This is the reason why we have all these problems in this city and people complain about Vancouver.
9: (laughs) Well, I will say that uh, the purpose of zoning is not to make problems. The purpose of zoning is to make, uh, make the districts work compatibly So people have expectation of knowing where they are and and what's beside them. Uh, So, for example, you're saying, oh, well, you know, what if it was a motorcycle shop? Well, it won't be a motorcycle shop. Why? Because the zoning won't permit that in this residential zone.
1: That wasn't going to be allowed anyway. That was the example that one of the neighbors used. So, Jim, let me just sum up by saying this. It's probably going to happen now. It sounds like the city is going to try to make it easier for daycares to open up. Are you okay with that?
9: Well, that's excellent, and it'll be on the table, and it'll be up front for the neighborhoods and the potential operators. They'll all have, I'm going to set a clear set of uh, rules, house, you know, house rules as to what's going on, so to prevent this kind of, I'm going to say, conflict at the the eleventh yeah. hour. Uh, between a uh, you know a uh, an operator who's who's doing you know a a valid use yes
1: yes but has
9: has tripped on the uh, issue of scale
1: but didn't even know she was tripping on the issue because nobody in the neighborhood told her. Listen, Jim, I appreciate you coming on today, and thank you very much for helping us out and giving us that side of the story. And I know there's going to be a lot more to say about this. That's Jim Lado, principal of Urban Design and Developing Consulting, talking about the child care in Douglas Park.